Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. I love taking these nonprofit leadership topics on the road or into your Zoom room. So if you need someone at your next conference or workshop, check out my new speaking page at patentmcdowell.com for more information. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this fantastic conversation I had with Grace Nicolette, who serves as the vice president at the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Now, that role alone and the great work she's doing there gave us plenty to talk about, and it certainly relates to the trends and issues that affect every element of your nonprofit leadership. But what I think will make this conversation even more valuable for you is that Grace has a fantastic leadership journey herself, and she's learned lessons working in the international philanthropic community and has brought some of those lessons and experiences now to this conversation and helps share some of the resources she continues to use to this day. Lots of reasons to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 188. Just go to the podcast page at patentmcdowell.com and you'll find all of the resources mentioned, as well as more information on Grace and the great work she's doing through the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Grace Nicolette. Grace, thank you for joining me on the path. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm delighted to have this conversation with you, Grace. You have a wonderful perspective of all things nonprofit leadership and philanthropy and many other topics that we will unpack from your work in the, well, certainly at the Center for Effective Philanthropy, but also other parts of your journey. And something you and I had a conversation about prior to this recording session was, of course, uh, all the leadership issues in our sector and maybe some of the surprises that leaders face when they join our nonprofit sector. I wonder if I could open with that question, Grace. What are some of the surprises? Because I think many of our listeners want to lead a nonprofit, but perhaps they need to be aware of some of the things you have already considered. So is there a particular surprise that you might raise to start us off? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm thinking to a lot of conversations that I've had with folks who um, reach out because they would like to make the switch, for instance, from the for-profit world into nonprofit leadership. And I think that often they're searching for meaning, right? Like perhaps they are in a for-profit environment where, um, you know, profit is king and they're searching for something that has more purpose. And what I often say to folks like that is that, yes, it's true. Um, you actually can find a lot more purpose working in the nonprofit sector, but that it's also important not to put it on a pedestal, right? Like right. Culture, culture is, you know, something that every organization, whether for profit or nonprofit or government or university or, you know, other settings really has to reckon with. It's something that has to be carefully tended and stewarded. And so my recommendation for folks who are looking at nonprofit jobs is that really looking into the culture of an organization can be so important. And I think that sometimes people are surprised that there can be really unhealthy nonprofit cultures as well. And, and obviously, when we think about it, it's like, well, of course, there's probably healthy and unhealthy cultures everywhere. But I have encountered folks who have been surprised by that. Such a good point. In fact, uh, my first 
career opportunity in the nonprofit sector was with Special Olympics International. And for many uh, volunteers in that organization, of course, it's a feel-good experience. And I wonder, Grace, if perhaps others have had a feel-good experience as a volunteer or maybe a more external perspective. And to your point, they don't really understand the internal mechanics. Right. And I would say, you know, with any job, the supervisor that you would have, that your direct supervisor often has the most impact on your day-to-day experience. And so really understanding not just the culture of the leadership and the whole organization, but how is your direct supervisor, or in the case, if you're an executive director, what is the board like? Because they they would be your boss. (laughs) Um, What is the culture there? What are some of the norms and values that drive the practices there? Well, great point. And I want to unpack that further because, again, as you and I have talked about, there are listeners uh, exploring this perhaps right now or, mm-hmm. you know, exploring certainly elevating their professional career. Uh, well, let's talk about your exploration of the nonprofit sector. You had some, I guess, similar opportunities early on, including in the international sector. So I wonder, tell us a little bit about your journey and maybe how it's led to the work you're doing right now. Yeah. You know, so many people ask, how does one get into a career in philanthropy, which is the sector that I work in now. And I say that like a lot of people, I backed into it. So certainly there are you know grad school programs out there now for philanthropy, but for right. me and for many others, uh, it, was a, it was a surprising journey. I started off uh, in a finance job right after college and then um, wanted to work overseas. So I actually got a job in finance for a semiconductor company in Shanghai, of all places, wow. um, a few years out of college. And I was volunteering on the side there quite a bit. And uh, I think I went through that same crisis that we just talked about of, of really wanting more purpose and finding a lot of joy in the volunteering that I did. And so I really reached a point where I had to grapple with how much do I really like this? <laughs> is this something right. that is worth quitting a job over? And in my case, I think it was the combination of having worked really long hours and sort of needing a break. And also sort of, you know, this I was, I think, 25 at the time, having um, the blessing of my parents to kind of also just kind of take a pause and, and see like, you know, what, what should my next step be? And um, so I actually ended up starting a small uh, philanthropy consulting firm with a group of American and Chinese friends in Shanghai because we got connected with a number of nonprofits that were doing really great work but really didn't have a bridge to international donors. And then we were also meeting a handful of international donors, especially overseas Chinese, who really wanted to give back to you know, their hometown in China or they really cared about certain things in China. There was actually a group of moms from the Midwest who had adopted Chinese children and really wanted to stay involved with orphan care in China. So there really was this opportunity to be a bridge between causes in China and donors. And so that's actually how we got our start. And so uh, it was, you know, completely different experience for me. Um, I was we were a nonprofit, but I was actually, you know, in charge of a of a PL and also payroll right, for the first time right. in my life. And, uh, and yeah, it was definitely a trial by fire experience, but a very good one. Well, first of all, uh, kudos to your parents uh, who, for because I, th- I think there is pressure, right, for many young professionals. And I felt this, too, working for Special Olympics early on. 
there was admiration, I think, for a cause people respected. And I was going to ask you the same question. But there was also sometimes an implication, okay, good for you, Pat, but when are you going to go back and get a real job? Yes. And I wonder, did you face any of that or did that thought occur to you of going back into finance where you were obviously successful as well? Yeah. I mean, that's just a very common tension that I faced, right? It's the whole, should you go back to a more lucrative job and earn more money that then you can give away? Or should you devote your own time and effort uh, career-wise? And I think it's such a personal decision. Um, And for me, I I just knew that on the for-profit side of things, at least at that part, point in time for me. My heart just wasn't in it. Um, And also, I mean, you know, our journeys can take us sort of back and forth between different sectors um, throughout. So, uh, you know, who's to say that I will continue always uh, in nonprofits, even though I love it. And I do think that um, a lot of the skills are transferable. We just have to be really humble about what those are. Um, And so, yeah, so for me, it was an easy decision, but certainly wouldn't want to say that, you know, it's the one that everyone should make. Yeah, that's well put. And I guess, again, for you, speaking of the transferable skill topic, uh, clearly you had experience that I think uh, helped you as a consultant early in those philanthropic kind of consulting years. Were there any surprises or did anything in particular, did you have to learn or relearn when you jumped into nonprofit work? Oh, so many things. (laughs) Um, Boy, where to start? I mean, I think that the biggest thing that I learned that actually set me on this trajectory to working at the Center for Effective Philanthropy now is I had no idea about the power dynamic that exists between nonprofits and their funders. Interesting. And because I was, you know, I had previously, because as a volunteer, you know, I also gave to these causes that I cared about. I was purely on the donor side of things. And once we became more of a bridge, I began to see things more from the nonprofit's perspective. And it was very eye-opening, right? Like it really is in some ways inhabiting a different reality of having to fundraise, having to, you know, really understand the needs of a community and, you know, balance managing a staff, (laughs) all of that. And so I think that I really came to appreciate just how challenging it is to run a nonprofit well. And what hero heroes nonprofit leaders are in ways that sometimes funders I think don't don't realize. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you left that up. And I, well, then I guess fast forwarding though, what led to your current work at the Center for Effective yeah. Philanthropy? And then tell us for listeners who don't know what is the Center for Effective sure. Philanthropy. Yeah, so I um, around 2011 decided you know it was time to sort of move on to my next chapter. I uh, my then fiance, now husband, was in Boston. And so I had known about the Center for Effective Philanthropy just because it's a very well-known organization within philanthropy. I've been following CEP's president, Phil Buchanan, on Twitter, even from China, and loved kind of what he was saying. And so when I landed here in Boston, I quickly found out there were actually very few China-related jobs. I'd have to be in like a bigger city for that. Um, But then I saw an opening at CEP and so I applied for it and, and you know, the rest is history. I've been there for over 11 years now. And I think the, the thing that really attracted me was really two things. One is CEP is really trying to like create these feedback loops for nonprofits to 
really share like useful, credible feedback back to their funders so that funders can be better. And having experienced some of the positive and negative effects that funders can have on nonprofits in that China context, I felt it like in my bones that this right. sort of service was really needed. Um, and the second is that it's just the culture at CEP is just really unique and special. It's very employee centric. It's incredibly thoughtful around um, the employee experience. And so I really, frankly, never worked anywhere like that before. And having run my own organization, I really appreciated how difficult it is to steward that well and appreciated actually, you know, taking a step back and being led <laughs> for a while yeah, instead yeah. of having to make all the decisions. And so anyway, that that by, you know, that's sort of my story. But in terms of what CP does, so, you know, we're a nonprofit. We're headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We also have a San Francisco office. And what we do, basically, we provide free research on best practices. And these are all evidence-based best practices for funders of all kinds. So institutional foundations, as well as major donors. Um, we're probably best known for our assessments for foundations. So um, early on, Phil and some of my, my other colleagues uh, created what's called the grantee perception report. So basically, yeah. it's a grantee survey that funders can commission, where as a sort of independent third party, we can go out and survey the grantees of, you know, we've done this for everyone from the Gates Foundation all the way down to tiny family foundations. And we do this on a regular basis for, for a lot of them. And we give the results back in a benchmarked way, right? So like, you know, grantees have a great position in that they can understand a funder's impact in a way that perhaps others can't, right? And so it's just really useful information. So it's not really like a program evaluation per se. We're not saying like, how's your education program doing foundation? It's really more like how clear your communications, um, what's the perception the grantee has of, you know, you as a funder, your impact on their organization, on their fields, how, much, how many hours are you spending on this funder's uh, processes, like the application process, all right. of that. And it's just so rich. And so we have many assessments like that. We have a donor assessment for community foundations. We have staff assessments, and then we also create custom ones. But it's just such a powerful experience because funders don't really have other feedback loops. Like if you're in a business, you have that profit you know, number that is giving you the feedback that you need about how the market is understanding you. But that dynamic doesn't really exist uh, in philanthropy. So we come with a bunch of really helpful and salient insights and data that help funders improve. I love that. And you do indeed have great content. There are going to be multiple links, I'm sure, in the show notes for this episode, Grace, to make sure nonprofit leaders can get to this. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to build on your point, if I'm a nonprofit leader, the value to me of the Center for Effective Philanthropy will be to better understand the donor mindset, I, I guess. Of course, you're helping educate the donors themselves, yeah. the funders, right, about the nonprofit reality. But again, I, if I could ask again, sure. why should a nonprofit leader take advantage of the great content you're providing? Totally. So many nonprofit leaders have said to us, you are saying things that we are thinking all the time, but sometimes it's not you know, it's not something that we can say without risking, you know, the, the funding, right. <laughs> basically. Exactly. Like, we, you know, we want 
funders to realize that, for instance, giving us general operating support versus project funding that's, you know, locked down to one particular project is actually a more helpful way of supporting our work. But sometimes donors, they don't listen or they think, oh, well, of course, that's what you want. But having the independent research that backs up why those suggestions are important, I think is really key. And, you know, recently it's been interesting, too, because we actually just put out a report about the impact of Mackenzie Scott's giving right. on nonprofits. And so, as many of you may know, you know, she has been literally giving out billions upon billions of dollars in a short period of time to select nonprofits. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the impact of her giving. Like lots of people are lauding it. Some people are also saying, is this really the best way? Um, is there absorptive capacity issues at small nonprofits who are receiving these gifts? And so, you know, that's also a value that our research brings. So actually in the case of this report, the answer is no, we actually have not seen any negative, uh, you know, effects from these gifts. Of course, it's still early on. It's the first year sure, of a three-year sure. study. People are gonna be studying this for decades, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we can bring real evidence to bear in a way that otherwise, you know, is just sort of anecdotal, but having having the real data to back it up is really powerful. Right, it's fascinating. And again, Mackenzie Scott was indeed on my list of questions for you in terms of, you know, the impact as you talk to other funders. And you're right, uh, other than the overwhelming support for her generosity, the only counter I've heard is that, yeah, the potential accountability. Again, she's been wonderful mm -hmm. in terms of it's unrestricted giving, right? But yes. perhaps um, would there need to be, I guess other funders are like, yeah, but how are you going to account for how the money was spent? Is mm -hmm. that a topic that's coming up or how do you think uh, other funders are reacting to that point? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's interesting on the accountability piece is that, right, for most of her nonprofit recipients, the only thing that they're asking for is a three page or less letter describing what the nonprofit used, how the nonprofit used the funding. And so, you know, that's very different than a traditional funder where there might be like a very, like for a foundation, for instance, there might be actually a pretty long report that needs right. to be filled out. Right. And, you know, I think that the nonprofit leaders that we interviewed and surveyed for that study basically said overwhelmingly, like, they felt a strong responsibility to steward those funds really well, right? Like the spotlight was on them, but also what an amazing opportunity and one that, you know, nonprofit leaders take to heart and don't want to blow. And so there was, you know, a lot of internally generated accountability as well as, you know, one accountability coming from the public, um, knowing that folks have received this gift. And, you know, we actually received a surprise Mackenzie Scott gift last year. And, you know, the whole process of deciding what to do with that has generated no small amount of hand-wringing. Right. It's, it's certainly like a great problem to have. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've really needed to be extremely rigorous um, and thoughtful about the way we've, we're spending those funds. Well, maybe that is the genius in some ways of her philanthropy, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to dictating uh, the use of her funding. She is forcing, in essence, strategic conversations like those you're having at CEP. Uh, can I ask uh, where you are on that deliberation? Yeah. How do you uh, best maximize her generosity for your organization? 
Yeah. You know, like a lot of the organizations that we interviewed for the study, so, right, the study found that primarily folks used it on furthering their mission, so like investing in programs. Right. Um, but then a lot of it was also just storing up their own capacity. So I think that, you know, a lot of nonprofits are always very hand to mouth and perhaps, you know, in some cases their staff are paid below market. Um, so retention might be an issue. And so we saw a lot of um, fund, a lot of nonprofits that received the funding actually shore up those areas. For CEP, it was actually more because we already pay very competitively, it was more, what are the ways that we can, you know, dream big about what, you know, we've been around for 20 years now, what the next 20 years for CP might look like. Nice. Um, and so we um, did use the funds on some immediate projects that were needed. Um, we did use it on expanding the staff. And of course, expanding staff is always uh, a little bit of a, um, it's, a, it's an interesting opportunity because you don't want to also encounter like a fiscal cliff, right? Where right. You, you hired the staff, but then like in two years, you have to let them go because you can't sustain. So yeah, when the money know, runs out, right? Or some such exactly. financial. So right. to, yeah, it has to be done really wisely. And then we actually created um, a strategic opportunities fund actually that teams can apply to that uh, the board approves around just really big ideas that we've been thinking about for years that maybe we can actually you know, realize now with this funding. And then we also shored up our board reserves, which is something that I think is really important that we wanted to make sure we were up to six months of operating cash for our board reserve fund. That's fantastic. Well, again, the lessons inherent in your deliberation uh, likely are happening across many of these organizations that are recipients. Mm -hmm. and, and and well, let me ask you this, though, as you talk to and your studies lead to insight from other funders, two questions. One, do you think there's an increasing appetite for unrestricted giving? As you, many of our nonprofit friends are asking, please don't make us create some fancy new program to yes. you know get your funding. Um, and do you think there is maybe COVID also influences this the the rigor required for grant applications? And mm -hmm. you know this because particularly smaller organizations, those led by uh, you know uh, leaders of color, always feel like, hey, I don't have the bandwidth to chase yeah. some of these dollars, but I wonder, yeah, are, what are you seeing in both unrestricted giving and kind of the rigor required to seek funding? Yeah, so we actually did a, um, a number of studies on this. Since 2020, it was very interesting because once COVID hit, and especially after the protests that came after the death of George Floyd, we actually saw a lot of coordinated action among the foundations. So for instance, there was this pledge that the Council on Foundations hosted that I think over 700 foundations signed on to that was basically like, we're in a moment of crisis. Nonprofits and our communities need us to move quickly. So therefore we will pledge to do things differently than the usual. And so that included moving money more quickly, more in an un unrestricted fashion, more to communities that are disproportionately impacted by things like COVID and systemic racism, and uh, and then also loosening reporting requirements on the back end. And we wanted to see, did funders actually make those changes, right? It's one thing to like pledge yes, something. Yes, yes, right. And it's very different 
to actually do it because a lot of the processes that are foundation are just really baked in, right? And it's um, not necessarily a sector that's known for changing quickly um, on the fly. And we had been, you know, part of conversations in the philanthropic sector for decades, you know, two decades around general operating support is really found to be most helpful for nonprofits, but the, the actual proportion of folks giving that kind of funding out didn't seem to be moving over time. Well, anyway, the study showed that it did move. Good, <laughs> we did see good. a larger proportion of funders giving that kind of support and also loosening restrictions, both application-wise uh, as well as on the back end with reporting. And, you know, we, we did another follow-on study a year later last winter and it showed that funders were hoping to really sustain those. Um, and so, you know, there's this broad trend right now that people are talking a lot about called trust-based philanthropy, yes. where we're elevating more the perspectives and listening better to those who are on the ground, to the communities and the nonprofit leaders that funders are trying to serve. And, you know, I would say that our perspective on that is that it, it's really important to do that and that there really isn't an inherent tension between trusting and having rigor and actually a strategy and learning, right? So no one is saying you should just throw out the application process or the reporting process, uh, although some funders actually have done that uh, wow, in right. sort of emergency times. I think that it's about right-sizing, right? Because, you know, if you lead a nonprofit, what you often, if you talk to any nonprofit leader, as you know, oftentimes you work on these reports and the funder doesn't even read them, right? right and so you right. you end up like slaving away over something that isn't even used. And so our message to funders has been, let's let's make sure this is right-sized. Like you need to collect learning and evaluation. That's all very valid. Let's make sure it is appropriate to the size of the grant and the scope of the work that is done. And I think that that in itself has been a really useful challenge to a lot of funders for them to think about. Well, you know, something else, Grace, I've seen, and I wonder, I, I feel encouraged that perhaps this process, the silver lining of a pandemic and so forth, uh, and the George Floyd crisis um, has created more dialogue. Um, yes. And perhaps more funders are, are breaking down the wall of the application and just saying, hey, let's talk about this and how we might work together. But is, is that fair? Would you see that as well? I would say so. I mean, before, you know, I think funders, you still see a lot of this, but I, I've been encouraged by the changes that I have seen of, you know, funders creating application processes, reporting processes that were so bespoke to their particular cares yes. that, you know, they had to create, nonprofits would have to create something completely from scratch for them. And we're seeing funders say instead, hey, why don't you share with us an application that you sent to another funder um, and, and that, that will be good enough? Or why don't you send us your annual report? And the responsibility is then on us to read and digest and come back to you with questions. Interesting. And so then the report becomes a phone call, perhaps from the you know funder to the nonprofit executive director about the, the work. And so the, the dynamic of sort of the burden shifts in a, in a helpful way. I think that nonprofit executive directors really appreciate. Well, I'm delighted you brought that up. And I was going to ask you again, from the funder perspective, and I know this is a generalization, but are there certain things you think they're looking for 
again, our listeners right now are seeking funding and you know the question they have, what will it take? What do I need to demonstrate to my local funder? Uh, for example, are funders looking for more collaboration amongst nonprofits? You know, is that a characteristic that you think they're looking more for? Or are there other things, Grace, that have come up that, yeah, funders are definitely going to look at your board leadership or I don't know. Are there things yeah. that you, what do you think they're looking for to the extent you could generalize, I guess? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, it's so interesting because our MO typically has been nonprofits are actually already doing great work and funders are the ones oftentimes that are thinking about this in the wrong way or kind of giving uh, nonprofits too much pressure on things that may not matter as much. Right. Um, but I do think that, you know, to your point, Nonprofit leaders also have to be rigorous and excellent, right? Like, yes, they should have a strong board. Yes, they should have really great internal controls and, you know, robust fundraising, and as well as be able to answer very good and legitimate questions about the impact that you're having on the communities that you serve or the issue areas that you serve. So all of that, I think, is, is very much fair game. And I think that most nonprofit executive directors get that, right? Like that's sort of the air that they breathe. Um, and I think that for us, like the the value that we hope to bring is to speak into the donor's ear and say, you know, how you always just want to give that project grant to the food bank about this one thing. Well, in COVID times, that food bank had to pivot and serve a much bigger, you know, community of people right. or that after school program had to pivot and become a food bank. But because you restricted the giving, they weren't able to do that. And so if anything, COVID has shown us that these organizations are on the front lines and we need to be able to support them in ways that they can be responsive to needs as they come up. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. And again, you, you're, you're reflecting this feedback back to all the funders, right? That's a value mm -hmm. you add to the sector is that uh, these funders, in many cases, were isolated, right, in, in yes. terms of their own uh, strategies of giving, and now you're giving them a chance to. So are you constantly, I guess, trying to reach more funders? What, is there a marketing plan, so to speak, for <laughs> CEP to, to bring more funders into the fold of, of your community? I think so. I mean, we are completely mission-driven. And so generally, when we first started, it was really to larger staffed foundations, right? So foundations that were giving enough out where, you know, we could actually survey a grantee population that wasn't just like a dozen grantees. Um, you know, it's, we're limited in what analysis we can do when the numbers are small. Um, but over time, it's really grown. And, you know, about six or seven years ago, we started actually doing more work to outreach to individual donors as well. So whether or not they have their own foundation or whether they give through a donor advised fund or other ways, I think that there are some things that really do translate from a foundation grant making perspective to the individual donor perspective. Not, not everything, but there are certain things and things like listening well to nonprofits, um, you know, getting feedback as a funder, really release, releasing nonprofits to do their best work with the general operating support, um, all of those things. Well, it makes me think about, not to state the obvious, but a real value add for our nonprofit leaders listening is to share CEP's information with their board, I guess, with yes. some of the funders that they have great relationships with, because this is a resource that you want to provide. And I'm thinking, yeah, why wouldn't I share it if I'm a leader with my key constituents? 
Yes. And, you know, I would not be surprised if a lot of your listeners, our listeners now, actually have received a grantee survey from one of their yes, funders. Yes, yes, right. Um, and, you know, what's amazing about the experience, I'm always, you know, so surprised that maybe I shouldn't be, is that I mean, if you look at social sector surveys, like the response rates are going down over time, right? Like we all have shorter attention spans. But the average response rate on one of our grantee surveys is really high. It's like around 74%. Wow, that's and so impressive. It really shows that nonprofit executive directors, especially, really welcome the opportunity to give feedback on their funders because they really don't have any other channels to do that. Um, you know, you can have one-off conversations, sure, um, but this kind of comprehensive feedback that is done in a confidential way. So there's, you know, survey questions, but there's also open-ended comment sections. Um, it's just so instructive and constructive yes. for funders. Like they learn their unique strengths um, and they also learn like unique opportunities for improvement. And there's really no such thing as like the perfect funder. Like there's always strengths and opportunities and it's just such a generative conversation and like a learning conversation. Well, again, fantastic. And, and what a great way, again, for a nonprofit leader to lift up some of these topics without appearing to be self-serving, right? I'm not exactly. just going to my funders and kind of, offering my concerns or complaints, but hey, let's be part of a larger dialogue that CEP, frankly, is creating. And, and by the way, uh, do, you, do you find your audience is is international as well as national, or how would you describe kind of yeah. the, the community that CEP is building? Well, we certainly started in the United States, but increasingly it has become more international. And so yep. um, we have you know a staff member now based in Europe. And um, I think that particularly in countries that have a like institutional foundation form that reflects somewhat the forms that we have in the United States, um, they've really benefited uh, quite a bit from our assessments and our insights. So whether that's, um, you know, in India or the UK or Switzerland or um, Israel, there's just been a lot of uh, engagement and interest there. And, and really one exciting thing for us is that you know, a lot of our data now is U.S. based, but I think that the direction we're going to go is that over time we'll have, you know, unique insights by region as well, hopefully. Yeah, that's exciting. And I will uh, look forward to following uh, the growth mm -hmm. and development of what you are doing. And in fact, one of the resources I want to talk about that illustrates the growth and development is the podcast you mm -hmm. and Phil co-host, Giving Done Right. And as a fellow podcaster, of course, I'm a fan of what you're doing, but maybe you could talk about, yeah, how did that come about and what is the purpose of uh, your podcast? Because I want to encourage our listeners to check it out. Thank you. Yeah. So Giving Done Right actually came about, our first season was in 2020 uh, during the pandemic. And um, because travel was curtailed, I think we had to think very differently about how to reach our audience with these like insights on effective giving. And so I think the podcast was a natural kind of idea and outgrowth of that. And so, you know, we've had three seasons so far. We actually just wrapped season three. So one season per year, usually um, in the fall leading up into the giving season. And we have a mix of, you know, inspirational donors, inspirational nonprofit leaders that folks may not have heard of, um, foundation leaders, and we just discuss kind of trends and best practices. And it's uh, it's been really great. It's like a really engaging 
kind of way to digest and kind of marinate in some of these ideas around effective giving. And, you know, we were really surprised because we didn't think, um, you know, frankly, it just feels like a podcast sometimes, as you know, is like you just put it out in the ether and it can be really hard to understand kind of what um, the the actual impact is. But it's it's been really positive um, for us. And um, we were very surprised that uh, last season we learned we were in like the top 2% of podcast downloads, fantastic. which um, was, was kind of shocking. So, yeah, I, you know, I encourage folks to check it out if they're interested. It's at uh, givingdoneright.org. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, certainly lift that up in our show notes as a link. And, and and again, you brought this kind of seasonal approach. So have you begun, you and Phil, to think about the next season or seasons? Uh, kind of how how do you, uh, what have you learned from what you've done so far? And how might that impact, I guess, more the same on the podcast front? Yeah, you know, we're still having that discussion now. Um, it's the same team in our organization that uh, does the podcast as uh, plans our kind of national conference, which happens every other year. And we haven't had one since uh, 2019, but we are having one next year. So I think that we're sort of figuring out what is the right kind of resourcing mix there right. um, to make both happen. So yeah, but stay tuned. I mean, I think that the momentum is such that um, we're certainly going to continue um, and we're just trying to figure out what's the best way to do that. Well, again, I'm delighted to lift it up. And hopefully our listeners will follow your journey on the podcasting front, as well as all of the uh, Center for Effective Philanthropy's work, uh, which is fantastic as well. Um, you. Grace, you know, you've given a lot of good advice. And I'm going to encourage our listeners to ponder the resources you have, the podcast, the reports, the studies. Uh, closing question, I guess, for us is about mm -hmm. uh, other advice you'd have, uh, again, for those listeners pondering nonprofit leadership. And you've certainly brought to many of those ideas already. But anything else you would add to someone listening, thinking about nonprofit leadership? Yeah, I think my mind goes back to the issue of culture. So what we are looking for in a culture, in an organization that we work for, as well as what we would like to bring to a culture. And so I think that those are questions that are worth really investigating and delving into prior to making a jump, let's say from for-profit to nonprofit or, or even a lateral move uh, between nonprofits. Because I think that, you know, I think more and more we see this with the great resignation and all of that is that we have a chance to make a difference in the nonprofit sector, but it doesn't mean that we should just take any old opportunity, yes. that we should take time to be thoughtful around um, what kind of work culture we want to be a part of and, um, and make a difference in, and, and that culture is very important. Fantastic advice, and I'd underline something you said earlier too, because it, again, I think many times we stop at the job description, right? We great yes. organization, look, job job description looks interesting, but you said it earlier. We need to understand who who the boss will be, who mm -hmm. and or the board of directors, right? I guess those yes. would be two critical culture elements that, and I guess anything else that Grace you look for as you were exploring a nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that those would be the main things. It's like, does does the leadership really live their the values of the organization, and and what are those values, you know, spoken or unspoken? Yeah, well put. Um, well, you knew this was coming, but my request for a parting gift is a book recommendation. And so, I yes. wonder, has there been a book meaningful to you that you would share with our listeners? Yeah, the book that I want to recommend is called Flex. 
It's by um, a leadership coach, Jane Hyun, and uh, her partner, Audrey Lee. Now, Jane, um, in Asian American circles, Jane is really well known because uh, about 20 years ago, she wrote a book called uh, Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling. And that's basically referring to the lack of Asian American representation and leadership in companies and other big organizations. And and for myself and for a lot of people, that book was really seminal uh, in understanding kind of the landscape. But Flex is actually a book that's more recent that I recommend to everybody because it's actually about how to have the cultural competency to lead well, regardless of what kind of organization you're in. And, you know, I find that a lot of times culture, you know, me coming from an Asian American culture, or uh, we all come from our unique cultures, um, that we bring a lot of assumptions and ways of talking and ways of seeing the world, which can bring so much when there's a lot of different kind of diversity. But it also requires a lot of skill (laughs) to understand how to navigate that, how to appreciate differences, and how to you know, really come together around our strengths when we are so different. And so that book, I would I would highly recommend. Yeah, that's excellent, Grace. Wonderful recommendation and timely, right, for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. So thank you for adding that to the wish list. As the holiday season approaches, I will encourage our listeners to consider adding a book or two, and that might be one to put on the top of the list. So mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, well Grace, um, of course, we're going to link up um, CEP and the shows, but is there anywhere else you would encourage listeners to learn more about you and the great work you're doing there? Yeah, no, I think, you know, cp.org and givingdoneright.org, um, you know, that's where you can find me. And uh, also just want to recommend um, Phil Buchanan, CEP's president, you know, who's been on your show, uh, has a great book called Giving Done Right, um, which has fantastic examples. I mean, it's the, what we named our podcast after, but is also just a tremendous resource that I highly recommend. Yeah, Grace, thank you for that reminder. We will also link up Phil's episode in the show notes for your episode, Mm -hmm. as well as his book and all the wonderful resources you are part of. So thank you again for all the work you're doing in our sector and for joining me on the path. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Grace as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and help your nonprofit organization be more aware of some of the key trends in the philanthropic sector. Now, don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, where you can find out more about Grace, the Center for Effective Philanthropy, and the fantastic resources it provides, including a podcast that's called Giving Done Right that she co-hosts with her colleague, Phil Buchanan. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe by going to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com. And you just have to hit the follow button. And that will assure that you won't miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And of course, if you like this episode, click on the episodes button at the top of that same page. And you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for the work you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.